Pushkin. Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill-building courses for you to choose from because the steps you choose to take today will help you love what you do in the future. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. If you're looking for a new podcast but don't know where to start, here's one you can add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Jordan talks to everyone from neuroscientists to CEOs to astronauts, authors, and performers. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with historian Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his episode with Fool Me Once author Kelly Richmond Pope on how fraud became a trillion-dollar industry. Whether Jordan's conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a show about technological progress, and yet... In the year or so we've been making the show, we have not had a single episode about the most important driver of technological progress in the modern world. Semiconductors. Microchips. Chips, as you know, are everywhere in the modern world, except on what's your problem. I apologize for the oversight, and we're going to fix it right now. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and this is What's Your Problem? My guest today is Chris Miller. He's a professor at Tufts University and the author of a book called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. The book explains not only how chips have become a billion times more powerful over the last several decades, but also how that extraordinary progress has made chips ubiquitous and essential and, increasingly, something governments are fighting over. The U.S. government right now is fighting to keep chip-making technology out of China. Also, the U.S. government is spending tens of billions of dollars to get companies to build more chip factories in the United States. And on a related note, most of the world's cutting-edge chips, almost certainly including the chips powering your phone right now, are made in Taiwan. 
a country that China claims as part of its territory and that China might invade or blockade or generally mess with in the coming years. Chris writes about all of this, and we talked a lot about it. But in order to really understand what's going on now and how we got here, we started out by talking about two companies in particular. Giant companies that are doing amazing things and that are absolutely essential to the global economy. Also, almost nobody in the U.S. ever talks about either of these companies. The first one we talked about is a Dutch company called ASML. They make this amazing machine that you have to buy from them if you want to make cutting-edge chips. Nobody else in the world makes this machine. The machine uses a technique called lithography to print impossibly intricate chips. To start, I asked Chris to explain how lithography has evolved. So the way you do it is by using light as your tool. Okay. Uh, and you shine light through a mask that has the pattern you want to imprint on the chip. Mm -hmm. So the light goes through where the holes are. It doesn't go through where there aren't holes. And by using essentially an upside down microscope at the outset, okay. you could take something that was big and make it look smaller. Uh -huh. Just like microscopes <laughs> usually take something small and make it it's look like bigger. when you look through the wrong end of a telescope. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So you basically take sort of like a stencil, you stick it on a microscope, you shine light through the microscope the wrong way, and you, you're able to basically print a chip that way. That's right. At least that's how it worked in the, the simple earliest days. So the challenge has always been to print ever smaller features on chips. And for a long time, visible light was uh, perfectly uh, acceptable printing device because it had a wavelength of several hundred nanometers, and that's pretty small. But a couple decades ago, we got uh, to the point where chips already had features that were so small, visible light wasn't small enough or powerful enough to do the printing. So that is, that is yes, a wild moment, right? So the idea that like these things on the chip are so fine, so close together, that light is weirdly too big. Like they're right. smaller than like the wavelength of visible light. So this, That's is, right. this is the next problem. How, how does that get solved? You need to make a jump to a, a very different light source with a much smaller wavelength. Okay. And that's the origins of the EUV, the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines that we have today. So ultraviolet light has a shorter wavelength than visible light. So therefore you can print even smaller stuff on a chip. Um, extreme ultraviolet is presumably the short end of ultraviolet light. So you can still get smaller and smaller. So we're in this world where there is this one company, ASML, right? Tell me about this company and tell me about the EUV machine that it sells. So the ma machines themselves uh, create EUV light by having balls of tin, 30 microns wide, so 30 millionths of a meter wide, falling through a vacuum. Then well, like what, first of all, what does that even mean, right? You say those <laughs> words, but like why it's what a ball of tin... 30 microns wide falling through a vacuum. Like, what's even going on? Why do you need falling balls of tin in a vacuum? Because this tin, when you strike it twice with an ultra-powerful laser, will explode into a plasma that is 40 or 50 times hotter than the surface of the sun. And this plasma will release 
light with exactly the right wavelength, extreme ultraviolet light needed for lithography. And so then that light goes through some kind of a mask or stencil and makes the imprint on a chip? Well, the, the trick is that you need really unique mirrors, the, the flattest mirrors humans have ever made to collect that light after it's produced by the plasma. And there's around a dozen of these mirrors inside of each machine that then directs it towards the stencil and then onto the silicon wafer. So, okay, so that those are the basic mechanics of the machine. How big is one of these machines? What's it look like? They, they're the size of a, a, a truck. Okay. And they look like uh, uh, they've got wires and tubes of all sorts coming out of them from every direction. Um, they're the most complex manufacturing tool humans have ever made. And in, inside of them, there are hundreds of thousands of component parts. So you say it's the size of a truck, like a like a pickup truck or like a semi-truck? What am I picturing? Like a semi-truck. Okay. It takes multiple airplanes to move one of these machines. Oh, interesting. Okay. And how much does it cost? Around $150 million a piece. So they're the most expensive machine tool produced in human history. So, okay, because this machine is so expensive and so complex, uh, and because the market for it is so small, right? Only a few companies in the world make truly cutting-edge chips. We've wound up in this world where there is only this one company, ASML, that makes this machine. And that fact is really important in terms of trade and geopolitics and, and lots of other big things. And I want to talk about that. Uh, but before we do, I want to talk about one other big, uh, important under-discussed in the U.S. company uh, that also has an acronym for a name. That company is TSMC, the biggest chip maker in the world. So um, tell me the story of TSMC. TSMC was founded by a, uh, an executive named Morris Chang, who'd spent uh, his career at Texas Instruments really building the U.S. chip industry. And TI at the time was one of the leaders um, uh, in chip technology. But he was passed over for the CEO job in the middle of the 1980s was looking for something else to do and was approached by the Taiwanese government to help build a chip industry in Taiwan. And, and he realized at the time that as manufacturing chips was getting more complex and as the economies of scale to manufacturing were growing because you needed more complex equipment, more specialized uh, materials, that in the future, there would be a market for manufacturing services of semiconductors. And so he conceived this company not to design any chips. They've never designed chips. They only manufacture and they serve a large number of companies from Apple to AMD uh, to NVIDIA that today don't do any manufacturing. They only do chip design. And so when, when people talk about like Apple's own chip, you know, when Apple starts using its own chips, Apple's not making those chips, right? In the same way that they're not making whatever, the rest of the iPhone, right? They're designing the chip and it's actually being made in a factory in Taiwan, in fact? That's right. And, and I think if you if you look on the back of an iPhone, it'll it'll say designed in California, assembled in China. And, and that's true, but it misses a critical step because all of the key chips, not only in iPhones, but in most Apple products are manufactured by one company in Taiwan. And so TSMC is now at the frontier, right? They are making the smallest, most advanced chips. Um, no U.S. company is any longer at that frontier. So in that TSMC story, is there like a moment that is sort of the key moment when the kind of center of gravity in the chip world shifts from California to Taiwan? 
Yeah, the, the key shift was the smartphone. Huh. Steve Jobs actually went to Intel um, when he was conceiving the iPhone and asked if Intel would be interested in producing chips for this device. But at the time, it seemed a little bit crazy to think that people would want computer-sized processing on their phone. Intel thought it'd be a low-volume product and said, no thanks. And uh, he took it um, to contract manufacturers in East Asia instead, first producing it at Samsung and then later uh, turning to TSMC to be the exclusive producer of the iPhone's chips. And, and it wasn't just Apple. The entire smartphone ecosystem grew up alongside TSMC. And so today, TSMC produces around 80% of the world's smartphone processors. And a typical smartphone will have a dozen semiconductors inside, one for the Wi-Fi, one for the Bluetooth, one for the audio. And many of these chips are produced by TSMC. So your background, you're a scholar, and your background is basically in international relations, right? Not in technology or innovation. And it seems like that seems like an extraordinarily interesting and useful framework for thinking about chips, basically, right? For thinking about sort of global, the global semiconductor industry today. I mean, you have one company that's essential that's in the Netherlands. You have another company, maybe the most important company in the global economy, if I wanted to be, if I wanted to reach for it. TSMC is in Taiwan. Taiwan is an island right off of China that thinks it's an independent country, but that China thinks is a part of China. Semiconductors are like the most important thing in the world economy right now. Maybe oil, but you could make a good case for semiconductors. Like, that's a super interesting, super complex, fraught situation. How should we think about it? Well, I, I think you're right about how, how complex it is. And, and what is striking to me is the extent to which we think of industries like the chip industries being globalized. And they're international, but actually the production is concentrated in a number of really key countries and companies. Joe Biden was in the Netherlands a few months ago in part to make sure that ASML wasn't selling its fancy machines to China, right? Like, that's how important it is that the president is going to go there and be like, thank you for not selling these machines to China. Please keep not selling them to China. The Biden administration also imposed restrictions more generally on selling chips to China was last year. Like, talk me through that. Talk me through China's role in the in the global semiconductor industry. Today, China produces a fair number of chips, but almost all of them are pretty low tech. Okay. And when it comes to cutting edge chips, China is far behind the cutting edge of what can be produced in Taiwan or in, in the United States. And almost all chip making in China requires machine tools like lithography tools from ASML, other types of tools that are imported from abroad, from the US, from Japan, from the Netherlands. And because of that, uh, the Chinese economy is critically dependent on imported chips. Is China trying to catch up? Are they going to catch up? They've been trying to catch up. Uh, since 2014, the Chinese government uh, has made semiconductors a priority, poured billions of dollars each year into the chip industry in China. But the problem is it's really hard. It's really, really hard to acquire these capabilities. And it's hard because we're talking about the most complex manufacturing humans have ever undertaken. The, the difficulty that Chinese firms have faced are, are twofold. First is that the market is so consolidated that breaking into it requires enormous capital investment plus really unique technologies. And so it's just hard to break into new markets when it comes to the chip industry, which is why you've seen 
in many segments of the industry, firms stay in their market position for years, if not decades. That's just an environment where new entrance is hard. Like like making be, becoming another yeah. ASML. It's like kind of not going to happen. Close to at impossible. This point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the other issue is that the U.S. government's been making it harder over the past uh-huh. around five years by cutting off China's access to certain types of tools, uh, equipment, materials, software, uh, and knowledge. Because now it's illegal for U.S. citizens to work with certain Chinese semiconductor companies. Uh, and transfer knowledge to them. And the U.S. wants to do this because it's afraid that if China develops more advanced shipmaking capabilities, it'll apply these to military and intelligence systems. Which, like, of course it would. That's what all governments do, right? Exactly. So China wants to make advanced chips. Taiwan makes the most advanced chips in the world. And China thinks Taiwan should be part of China. In a minute, what does Taiwan's chip industry mean for its relationship to China? In particular, what does it mean for the possibility of a Chinese invasion or annexation of Taiwan? You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wisefriend. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency, Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, 
I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. The automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. That's the end of the ads. Now we're going back to the show. In a more general context, people talk about the possibility of China invading or blockading or annexing Taiwan. How do you think about that in the context of the chip industry? Some people argue that China would want to attack Taiwan in order to acquire the chip-making facilities there. I think that's close to impossible. The reality is that although Taiwan has unique manufacturing capabilities, the facilities in Taiwan require importing machines from the Netherlands, from the U.S., from Japan. Uh, they require importing materials like silicon wafers and lots of ultra-specialized chemicals. And so they really couldn't operate without regular uh, imports from abroad. So I, I think it's really, really unlikely that China were to attack Taiwan with the aim of seizing the chip-making facilities because the Chinese leaders know that they'd be blown up in the process. It wouldn't be possible. So China certainly thinks Taiwan should be part of China, right? That's not ambiguous, um, independent of TSMC. So in a world where China tried to make Taiwan part of China by force, what would happen? Like, what is the sort of set of probabilities you think about in terms of what would happen to the chip industry and the global economy more generally? If there were an attack on Taiwan or a blockade that disrupted trade in and out of Taiwan, the impact for the world economy would be catastrophic. TSMC produces 80% of smartphone processors. It produces a third of PC processors. It produces all sorts of critical chips and data centers and telecoms infrastructure. And then it produces tons of uh, less sophisticated chips that are critical for many other types of goods, dishwashers, washing machines, coffee makers, microwaves. A new car will often have a thousand chips inside of it. And in a given car, you should assume that at least 20% of the chips are made in Taiwan. So when you sort of think with your foreign affairs, international relations training about those implications, like I could imagine that going different ways in a kind of game theoretical way for China, right? On the one hand, it'd be like, oh, well, we don't want to blow up 
the world economy. On the other hand, it's like, oh, that's like a kind of leverage, right? We could say to the world, hey, just let us make Taiwan part of China because we all know it's part of China and we'll let the chips keep flowing. I, I don't know. Are those are those the ways you think about it? How do you think about it? The Taiwanese government uh, describes uh, the chip industry as a silicon shield. Uh -huh. uh, the idea being that China won't attack because it knows that the economic consequences would be disastrous for China and for the rest of the world, which uh, it would be. And I think that dynamic is present. But I worry as well that if China tries to move on Taiwan in a way that's below the threshold of what would necessarily trigger U.S. response. So a, a partial blockade, for example, which would present the U.S. with a really difficult calculus as to what to do. In, in that type of scenario, U.S. leaders would have a choice. Do you do nothing and let China pressure Taiwan while watching U.S. credibility in Asia disappear? Or do you do something and risk a disruption of the supply chains on which the world economy depends? And in that scenario, I think it's far from obvious that the chip industry helps secure Taiwan. And in fact, it could well deter the U.S. from helping Taiwan and therefore give China leverage uh, over the United States. So the U.S. passed a law last year, the CHIPS Act, which is basically subsidizing the manufacture of chips in the U.S., right? Tell, tell me about that uh, law. So the CHIPS Act uh, allocates around $52 billion uh, to semiconductors. Three quarters of that goes to subsidizing chip making in the U.S. One quarter goes to funding long-run R&D. And the idea behind the act is that right now it's, it's more expensive to build chip making facilities in the U.S. than in East Asia for a variety of reasons, government subsidies, tax policy, uh, regulation, et cetera. And the U.S. wants to reduce the cost gap and is putting government money behind that behind that to make it more competitive to build in the U.S. There's real concern about what happens if China does attack or blockade Taiwan. And in that scenario, we need more chip making capacity in other geographies, not in China, not in Taiwan. And so that's why Congress put money behind the CHIPS Act to try to build some capacity in other geographies. I feel like there's a, there's a, a bigger theme here that's interesting, right? An interesting theme is the the relationship of the government to the private sector and innovation more generally. And it that's a theme that runs through the history of the chip industry, really. And I'm curious if you could just sort of talk talk it through, you know, today. How how has that played out and how's it playing out today? And like how do you see the sort of optimal relationship there? The government's been deeply involved in the chip industry from day one. Um, it funded a lot of the R&D that made chips possible. It was the first buyer of chips for missile programs and, uh, and for the space race. And even today, it's a major funder of, of, of research and development in the chip industry. But it was never the force that let the chip industry scale. Selling to consumer markets was always uh, more important in terms of scaling because there's a lot more consumer demand than government demand. Tim Cook, Apple's CEO, has a lot more influence over the semiconductor supply chain than the U.S. president because he buys a lot more expensive chips. In the end, what do you think is the fundamental question of the book? Or what do you think is the question the book ends up answering? I think that the key takeaway from the book is that Although we don't think about semiconductors much at all, they're buried deep in our devices. In fact, you can't understand any of the major transformations in the modern world without them. Whether it's the shape of the globalized economy, whether it's the balance of military power, whether it's the rise of big tech firms, 
all of them have silicon semiconductors at their core. Uh, and they've structured all of these big trends in ways that until recently we were only dimly aware of. In a minute, the lightning round, including where Chris thinks the next Silicon Valley might be, and also what his next book might be. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wisefriend. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. 
Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Now, back to the show. I know you have to go relatively soon, so... I want to close with a lightning round, a bunch of fast questions. <laughs> um, so you, uh, you've studied the Soviet Union and Russia extensively. You, you've lived and worked in Moscow. What's one thing that you wish more people in the U.S. understood about Russia? Hmm. That's a hard question to answer right. I mean, I, I, don't, know if I, I don't know if I have a good answer to that question in the context of, of this conversation. Forget um, the context of this conversation. I mean, Look, obviously, the context for that question is the war in Ukraine, frankly. Right? Yeah, okay. Well, if, if that's the context, yeah. I think what's striking about Russia is the extent to which the the Russian foreign policy elite, uh, the people who make foreign policy in the foreign ministry and the Kremlin, they're convinced that their country is a great power on the world stage. And they're convinced that the way to make your country a great power is to assert it militarily and territorially. So it seems to me like a very 19th century or before view. The problem is that it's here and now in the 21st century, yeah. uh, and we can't wish it away. Yeah. Um, every region wants to create its own Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, there's like whatever, Silicon Beach, Silicon Mountain, everybody has their own bad name. What place do you think has the best shot of doing it and why? India right now is putting a lot of money into its chip industry. And simultaneous to that, it's putting a lot of uh, focus on electronics assembly. India is trying to attract assembly that's leaving China for smartphones and PCs. And so I, I would say that although it's starting from a very low base, India is likely to substantially grow its chip industry uh, over the next decade. What's one thing research universities get wrong about fostering innovation? Innovation is partly about science. It's partly about engineering, but it's also partly about business models. The, the innovations that really transform societies are those that have a business model that allow them to proliferate. And universities aren't nearly as good at producing business model innovation. In fact, they don't do any of it uh, relative to producing engineering innovation or engineer, uh, innovation in, in fundamental science. I mean, maybe the question was misguided as I hear you answer it, because like, Maybe universities shouldn't be in the business of innovating business models. I, mean, I guess there's a business school, but... Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think if you look at TSMC, for example, TSMC, you know, Morris Chang had no unique technological or scientific insight when he started TSMC. But by starting TSMC, he has transformed the landscape of the global chip industry. And so I, I would put the founding of TSMC uh, next to many of the other key innovations of the 20th century. But it wasn't a, a Nobel Prize winning innovation, even though it was arguably more important than many that have won Nobel Prizes. I mean, the fundamental innovation of TSMC was we're not going to design chips. We're just going to make chips that other people design. It was just that. But that was huge. That's right. That's right. And it, and it was informed by all sorts of technical knowledge. But the innovation was actually very simple and exclusively in the business model. What was the second most important technology of the last 50 years? <laughs> um, well, I, maybe this is a cop-out answer, but I think 
the development of the software that takes advantage of chips. Third most important. <laughs> um, what's a good answer to that? I don't know that I've got a smart answer to that question. Fair. I'll have to think about that. Maybe genetic engineering, but we haven't seen it pay off yet. Like if I were going to, it's kind of the obvious one, right? Like I feel like maybe in the next 50 years, we'll see that what has been happening in the sort of biotech world is about to pay off in a really profound way. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to explore genetic engineering as a potential topic for my next Wait, book. Wait, that's my last question. Um, What's your next book? <laughs> well, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, at genetic engineering and, and the intersection of biotech and AI um, as a potential next book. And if you, if you start with the thesis that DNA is just code, then the intersection between computing and, and biotech seems really profound. Uh, and the ways in which biotech has developed, uh, both in terms of the interplay between government and private companies, and also the international competition around it, also seems uh, seems very important. I think there's space to bring together some of these big themes uh, in a in a fresh way. Chris Miller is the author of Chip War: The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Today's show was produced by Edith Russolo, engineered by Amanda K. Wong, and edited by Lydia Jean Cott and Sarah Nix. I'm Jacob Goldstein. You can email us at problem at pushkin.fm, or you can find me on Twitter at Jacob Goldstein. We'll be back next week with another episode of What's Your Problem? If you're looking for a new podcast but don't know where to start, here's one you can add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Jordan talks to everyone from neuroscientists to CEOs to astronauts, authors, and performers. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with historian Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his episode with Fool Me Once author Kelly Richmond Pope, on how fraud became a trillion-dollar industry. Whether Jordan's conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.